Dr. Dale on Quail, bringing you the latest news and views about all things quail in Texas. Brought to you by the Rolling Plains Quail Research Foundation, preserving the wild quail hunting heritage of Texas for this and future generations. Major support for this podcast comes from Gordian Sons Outfitters. Well, hello, everyone, and welcome to this month's episode of Dr. Dale on Quail. I'm Gary Joyner with the Texas Farm Bureau. It's great to have you with us today. A great topic that I know you'll have interest in and one that's talked about across the state. Red imported fire ants and quail. What is the relationship? What are the direct or indirect impacts? Dr. Rollins has one of the state's foremost authorities on fire ants and quail, Dr. Brad Dabbert. Let's go to Dale now in Dallas with his special guest. Well, thank you, Gary. It's uh, always great to be with our listeners again this month, and we've got a special topic. Uh, It's what I call a hot topic uh, because it's dealing with fire ants. And uh, if you're literally from Dallas on a diagonal from Dallas down to Del Rio and you ask people what's happened to the quail, inevitably, in the court of popular opinion, fire ants are going to be at or among the top hypotheses as to what's going on there. So we've got the guy with us today that's done most of the fire ant research in the state of Texas. That's Dr. Brad Dabbert at Texas Tech University. And Brad, before we get started with that, you and I have had a lot of common tracks over the years for both Okies, both products of Oklahoma State University. But if you would, maybe pick it up from where you were raised in Oklahoma and tell us about your training, uh, and we'll go from there. Sure, sure, Dale. Well, first of all, I want to thank you for uh, letting me uh, participate in your podcast. It's uh, really popular around the state. I hear people talking about it all the time, and I think it's a a great uh, educational resource. And, um, you know, I look back on my my background um, comes from, uh, you know, originally I had a great uncle who raised bird dogs and um, just really loved that. Um, and love quail and, and wanted to make an avenue, a career somehow with that. And um, also got involved in science fairs. And um, there was a place there uh, in Ardmore, I grew up in Oklahoma, called the Noble Foundation. Uh, and there were some uh, biologists there, main one was named Mike Porter, that actually took me under his wing um, and uh, taught me how to do some a little bit of science with quail, and, and that just kind of fueled everything from there. I went on to Oklahoma State and um, then to Arkansas to get my master's and back to Oklahoma State to, to, to do a Ph.D. in uh, uh, some uh, quail work. And uh, anyway, uh, t- the job was open at Tech and was able to, to get that, and, and now 25 years later, we're we're sitting here. So. That's right. Uh, and shout out to Mike Porter and the Noble Foundation. Uh, anytime Mike's brought up, well, my first job opportunity interview after my master's degree at Oklahoma State was with the Noble Foundation. Really? Huh. And I thought, well, I did a pretty good job. feel pretty good about it. And as you can appreciate, I mean, if you landed a job with Noble Foundation, that was about as good as you could get. Yeah. And I, I felt pretty good about it. And then I learned that I was runner-up. And the guy that beat me out was a guy named Mike Porter. Oh. <laughs> and so uh, congratulations to Mike and the career he's had there with Noble Foundation. And for those of you within a 100-mile radius of uh, Ardmore, Oklahoma, you know that they have some great consulting services available to you and some great people up there. But uh, let's go back to your uh, Oklahoma State. You worked with Dr. Bob Lockmiller. Is that correct? I sure did. I sure did. And then when you went to Tech, what year was that? Um, that was uh, in 1996. And who did you succeed out there? I'm trying to put you into the... Uh, Scott Lutz. Okay, okay. Was who it was, yeah. Okay, good deal. Yeah. Well, we're proud uh, to have 
have you on uh, on our side now and on the, in Texas, and I know you've had a great career, and you're still having a great career up at Texas Tech. But again, bring us back to our topic today, and that is we're always searching for a silver bullet, a nostrum, a cure-all, what's happened to the quail population. And like I said, in the court of public opinion, fire ants are going to be right there at the top of the list. So uh, we want to discuss some of the research that you've done. And again, this can be fairly contentious when you discuss this because the lay audience is going to think one thing, the professional audience may think another thing. So we want to be able to, to look at that and get your ideas on uh, sorting the wheat from the chaff, if you will, about that. Just a little bit of background about the red imported fire ants, which uh, we just typically call fire ants. But there are native fire ants, uh, and, and it's the red imported fire ant, Solenopsis invicta. And if you uh, study uh, Latin, invicta means invincible. So the red, fire, red imported fire ant is literally the invincible fire ant, which is uh, troubling, I guess, if you will. Uh, we, you may hear a little bit of background noise. We are at the Park City's Quail Banquet today. And, uh, Dallas, Texas, honoring Bubba Woods, who uh, at some point in time we'll have an interview with him. But uh, pardon the background noise if you hear that. So, as Brad, how did the how did we inherit the red imported fire ants? Well, it's believed that it came in as uh, ballast uh, of ships uh, from South America, and that you know I don't know if you've ever seen. Uh, red imported fire ants uh, after a big flood, but you know, they ball up in a big ball, so they can certainly, um, you know, uh, float and exist. And, you know, it's believed that they floated in and got established uh, somewhere around the Port of Mobile, Alabama. And um, since then, I've been marching uh, uh, north and east and west ever since then, so. And I understand that uh, at least in the urban landscapes, you've got them as far northwest as Lubbock out in there. Yes, um, the fire ants are pretty uh, limited as far as uh, they need moisture. And so, you know, they really can't live much outside the city limits, but um, unfortunately they can travel in uh, landscape materials. And so you will see them sometimes again, even in Lubbock, um, you know, outside of a restaurant or you know a business that's been landscaped recently and and uh, boy you'll see them pop up because that that's of course an irrigated area so right. i'll never forget in 2005 i had a quail lease in coke county just northeast of san angelo in the summer of 2005 i saw my first fire ant mounds and i thought oh gosh i thought this is the beginning of the end kind of thing but then we returned to dry conditions and i didn't see them after that so they were just an opportunistic situation that took advantage of the moisture there um, let's talk specifically, Brad, about the fire ants and bob whites. Um, I mean, I've read everything, as I'm sure you have. Some people would say they're just a red herring, something to distract the fact that it's really habitat loss or fragmentation, and people want to blame fire ants. Versus, uh, again, is it the real deal? Sometimes people will lament the fact that, well, we have fire ants, so they're winter quail. I remind them that some of those fire ants weigh 1,100 pounds and have white faces. So we got to think about other <laughs> factors that are affecting that quail population. But let's talk about, and I'm going to ask you a little bit later on in the podcast, okay, Brad, what's the jury say? What's the judge say in your case? Guilty or not guilty kind of thing. But let's talk about some of the ways that fire ants can impact quail. And let's start with the, the nest and the chicks. Right, sure. Well, it's, uh, you know, when you 
think about fire ants when you see some of the pictures of you know the thousands of fire ants in, in a small area um, you know it's it's easy to conclude um, that they may have a huge impact but you know as we know in science we have to actually measure that because a lot of the things that appear to be um, you know so aren't really so there are other factors that uh, play a larger role or other factors we don't think of can intervene um, before things happen that we think may happen so but with with chicks um, the issue is they're vulnerable when they're pipping um, that is you know they have a leg tooth on the top of their beak that they use to cut out of the um, the egg and as they're doing that you know the proteinaceous fluids that are that are on the chicks leak out um, and the ants are attracted to those um, so the ants can go into um, the nest and um, then into the egg and they can and do um, kill chicks um, that that does occur unfortunately and I'm um, assuming that pipping typically takes place within a 12 24 hour period so if they're attacking one egg they're probably gonna get the whole clutch yeah typically if they find one they're gonna get the whole clutch um, if um, and, and we can you know as we move through our, our talk here I'll, I'll tell you kind of where the cutoff threshold we found but you know it depends upon the the uh, ant activity in the area okay so Brad I've heard that that fire ants can bite the feet of a quail chick and thus basically wound it and a handicapped chick ain't long for this world kind of thing so is there evidence to support that um, I mean, there is some evidence to show uh, that th there are uh, some that uh, receive some bites, certainly. Um, you know, the way we did our research was pretty well centered around the nest, though. Um, so most of the problem, I think, is really going to be centered around the fact that, you know, really high ant activity, you can lose a nest. So, and then I've also read, and I think in one of your papers, that... Uh, we can have some indirect effects too, and that's if you've got fire ants densities to where they're killing the arthropod nymphs and so forth, then indirectly that probably is not good for Bob White quail. Right. There are some papers out there that show that um, they can actually change um, the insect community uh, because of their uh, the feeding that they do in those areas. So, um, again, nobody's really measured um, really well chick survival um, in relation to that. Most of the work's been done on nests, but those are certainly areas that, that are of concern. Okay, and relative to that, I've, again, I've traveled all across Texas over the last 35 years and done quail programming. And one of the things when the topic of fire ants and quail is brought up, you'll hear somebody say, well, we may not have the, we, we may have the fire ants now, but at least we don't have ticks. So implying that the fire ants control the ticks. I don't know if that's true or false, but I caution them. If they don't have ticks, they don't have those grasshopper nymphs and a lot of other key beneficial arthropods that are important for quail. So I guess uh, be careful what you ask for. Right, for sure. Um, let's talk about various research projects on the topic of fire ants and bobwhites. And first, I want to start us off in the southeastern U.S. Uh, our colleagues down at Tall Timbers, Clay Sisson, some of those guys have done some work on fire ants. And at least as I interpret it, they don't seem to be quite as alarmed down there as what maybe, again, the, the layperson is over the southeastern half of Texas. Is that, a, is that a good read on that? And if so, maybe why? 
Yes, I, I think that's correct. I mean, they have done, uh, you know, those guys do tremendous research down there, and they have examined fire ants uh, and um, and their effects on quail nesting down there. And uh, most of their uh, percentages are pretty low, less than 5%, um, I believe. I mean, there's some areas in some years uh, in their studies where there might be a pocket uh, that was a little higher. But uh, for the most part, it was pretty low impact. Um, and um, the, the difference comes, and unfortunately this is, you know, we don't have many straight answers in science a lot of the times, um, but, uh, you know, this comes in where um, the fact that there are different types of red imported fire ants out there. Um, so you have um, what are called uh, monogyne or single queen colonies, which are what is most of what occurs over in the southeastern U.S. Um, and those are actually territorial, meaning that they're going to space out um, their mounds. And so you don't have as much ant feeding activity in there. So you may have 20 or 25 mounds per acre in those single queen colonies. Um, the polygynous or, or uh, multiple queen colonies that are happening a, a lot more in Texas, and I'm, I think they're, if you look at some of the entomologist work, it, they appear to be the dominant type in Texas. Um, what actually happens there is, is they're not territorial. They're actually uh, can be cooperative, um, and you can get several hundred mounds per acre. And so the, the magnitude of feeding is much greater um, where where that occurs. Now that's not the whole across the landscape of Texas, uh, but there are pockets where there are a lot of ants and mounds. Where would you say are the worst portions of worst parts of Texas as far as high fire ant densities? Well, it's going to be um, you know South Texas. A lot of those areas, like where we did our work, you know, our, our research projects were around Refurio. Um, and uh, on the on the Welder Ayers Ranch, which were great people to work with, and um, we, uh, you know, those areas where you know they've got good moisture and um, good temperatures, uh, they, you know, unfortunately there can be a lot of ants. And um, kind of confounding factor, though, as you know, there can be a lot of quail there right. too. Right, I was just thinking of the McCann ranches, Bobby McCann, and and some of those guys down around that Victoria, and you know, yeah. to my knowledge, they always have pretty good uh, quail population so again that makes us scratch our heads you know right if fire ants are really an issue how are they maintaining uh, decent numbers of bob whites kind of thing and i know that's some of the the arguments and the, the facts that you wrestle with is just how to make sense of those right well so i you know i think that does bring us to the conclusion that you know just the presence of fire ants doesn't mean the demise of quail um, you know, there are some articles uh, that show a correlation with, um, uh, you know, lower quail densities as fire ants march across the country uh, but and the state. But at the same time, there are all, all these other factors, right. too, that correlate just as well. So, um, you know, what we, we did with our, our research is we wanted to go in and, and actually measure what was happening at the nest. And um, so our... Our project again, which was down there on uh, near Refurio, um, we actually went in and on on some nest we actually broadcast um, uh, Amdro around around the nest to to clear out fire ants, so that wouldn't be a, f a factor. Um, and then we had our control nest where we didn't. 
Um, and of course we had a lot higher survival um, on, on the areas where we broadcast the, um, the AMDRO, but then at the same time, we also had some where we didn't broadcast AMDRO where the nest survived just fine. And so in the bottom line, it came down to is just how much was the ant activity in that area. And, um, you know, if anybody's interested in looking at this, this is published in the, in the Journal of Wildlife Management in 1999, which seems a long time ago when yeah. we're thinking about it right now. But um, basically, we put a, a bait in the nest on the day after hatch. Um, and it was just a, a you know, a, a little, about a quarter inch slice of hot dog um, because the ants are attracted to um, the, uh, that food source and put that in the nest and waited 30 minutes and then uh, basically put that thing inside a, a, a little condiment cup. Mm -hmm. And then I had some uh, technicians that counted all those. I think I had one grad student that said she counted 3 million ants. I don't know if that's <laughs> the case or not, but um, anyway. Well, she, we couldn't get anywhere if it wasn't for te technicians and grad students. That is for that sure. We, we stand on their shoulders, yeah, don't we? That's right. Uh, but... Uh, Anyway, the bottom line was there was a real threshold at if, if 300 or more ants got in that condiment cup um, in that 30 minutes, then we pretty much saw zero survival of, of, those, of the chicks in that nest. And if um, below that, then it looked like the rest of the survival on the ranch. It's and odd so, that you mentioned 300 as a threshold because in nesting ecology, we always recommend we want at least 300 bunch grasses per acre yeah, yeah. to help buffer our situation against predation. So it just it's kind of curious the patterns that sometimes pick out a number and, and go with it. My kudos go to you or whoever came up with that sampling technique about using a slice of hot dog to uh, recruit those ants. That was... Uh, what we call it, Bob Harper Gate, improvise, adapt, and overcome. Right, so right. Well, compliments to you on that. Well, we stole that from the entomologist. So, okay. okay well, I want to give credit and a shout out to Texas A&M. At the time, it was called Cooperative Extension Service because they were able to garner a million dollar special money, special appropriation out of the legislature to study fire ants and various aspects of fire ants, but. You were the one that was there to talk about the impacts on quail. So, again, shout out to Bart Drees and those various people that were involved with that. For sure, for sure. What time period was was this, Brad, that you were able to do this? Um, we did this uh, about 1997 through about 2002 or 2003. Um, you know, the early studies we, we did were on the, the impacts on nest success and and then after that, um, you know, we were trying to look at, okay, well, just what is the ant density in some of these areas? And, and um, also, what are some of the, the factors that can mitigate some of these issues, you know? Um, and you mentioned so. about putting down Amdro, um, and I saw some price figures back in that time of roughly $10 an acre to do that, but and in fact, but um, not good, but the effective treatment life was only like, eight months or something like that or maybe less than that i forget yeah it is not not very long so it it is is uh you know and i i am so far out you know we haven't done re, you know fire research since then and and i haven't been around amdro it, it, except for a bucket or two i use in the yard right. now and then you know so I'm, I'm hesitant to say anything about that but yeah it's it would be pretty expensive and um to, to try to do that i know there were some other 
insecticides that came pesticides that came along after, or in addition to Amdro, Logic was one of them. And at least our entomologists with A&M were touting that. Do you have any idea about would that have had a longer effective treatment life or, or, or probably depends upon the size of the area is treated? Yeah, the size of the area is. And, you know, there were, again, I'm, I'm not as familiar with those things as well, so I'm hesitant to really talk about that. But, I mean, they at the time they were trying to incorporate you know, two or three different ones, some that were growth regulators and right. some that had, you know, quicker kill and all these kind of things. And uh, so, I, uh, you know, since then, we've kind of moved on to other stuff. Again, interesting analogies in integrated pest management because, again, y'all, y'all identified an action threshold, 300 ants uh, recruiting within 30 minutes, did you yeah. say? And then if, if we think about, say, something like predator control, it's a pretty similar kind of analogy here because if you don't do predator control on a large enough area and intensively enough, well, you're just whistling Dixie because those critters are going to spill right back into that treated area, and I'm assuming that's probably fire ants are probably capable of doing that as well. Uh, down at Referial Country, Brad, as far as a national perspective, they had the Atwater's Prairie Chicken down there so you know, if you ever wanted to kind of raise the level of awareness, I would think that an endangered species, if they were subject to the same level of fire ant depredation or predation as the Bob Watts were, do you have any background or knowledge of what went on with that water prairie chicken during that time? No, not not really. The you know, I, I know that I think some guys from A and M though have done maybe Nova Sylvie or some of those guys have done some work on that, but I'm not really sure. I remember hearing Doctor Sylvie speak at a presentation one time, and he talked about dealing with Atwater's prairie chicken. He said only four out of 100 eggs laid would produce an adult, and I thought, my gosh, that sounds terrible. And still, until I started doing the math on Bob White's. It ain't that much different yeah. than Bob Watts kind of thing. Yeah. But let's before we leave the idea of treating with Amdro or whatever, I mean, if you had the money and the desire to do that, you could do that. But there are some potential bad effects of that as well as far as affecting other components of the community on our native ants and those kind of things. Yeah, I, you know, again, I'm not an entomologist expert, but I think, yeah, anytime you're um – you know, injection into the system, large scale like that, big enough scale to do a good, you know, you always have to wonder, um, you know, what, what is that doing to the rest of the system? So, Well, again, you talked to us just a little bit about the multiple queen colonies or polygynous or polygynous, however that said. Um, has there been any studies, or again, this isn't in your area of expertise per se, but the fire ants we have here in Dallas County, for example, are they more or less likely to be the multiple queen colonies, or do we have knowledge of that? You know, I'm I'm not certain. Um, I know that there are, you know, Texas is the area where where um, the polygynous queen colonies are more more dominant, um, and so I don't, I don't know the exact percentage. There's there's ways to uh, you know, take a look at them there, you know, you look at the width of the head of the ant and some things like that to see, uh, what kind you have. Um, but, um, I'm not really sure the percentages of those. And again, not your area of expertise per se, but Dr. Drees and some of his colleagues. And uh, I see what's the, who's the fellow at the university of Texas that was working on the, the, the forward fly. fly. Yeah. yeah. Dr. Gilbert I yes, believe, yeah. was, was his name. And I haven't, 
I haven't studied that in the last 10 years, so I don't know if they made any progress on that. Do you know what the status of that might No, be? I don't know. I mean, that was a fascinating thing, though, and, and you know, and really interesting to mention, um, you know, the fact that uh, um, what caused the fire, red imported fire ant to, to, do, to take off like that is there weren't any natural predators here in the States, whereas there was a um, you know, a, uh, another insect that predated on them in, uh, in South America. So, you know, um, that's, uh, kind of an interesting deal. They were trying to, to get those and get them, get them here. Uh, but I don't know how that went. I've seen a slide from one of his president, Dr. Gilbert's presentations years ago, 15 years or so ago that showed the fire ants and their reaction to when this frequency of the wing beats of the forehead fly, it's like all those ants were basically cringing, if you will, mm -hmm. uh, away from this uh, potential predator and, or I guess a parasite because it would lay an egg behind the ant's head and then when it hatched, it'd decapitate the, the ant. So uh, kind of the uh, fire ant equivalent of a screw worm eradication, right, if you yeah. will, which mm -hmm. everybody in Texas uh, applauds the screw, screw worm eradication program, especially if you're in the deer world yeah. kind of thing. Well, Brad, let's talk a little bit about uh, what I call Hippocratic management. First, do no harm. And uh, I want to talk about some of our favorite habitat management practices that we often recommend that involve soil disturbance because we want to take that little blue stem back down to western ragweed and doveweed, either with a tandem disc or a prescribed burn. But what have we found out about how that impacts our enemies, the fire ants. Well, um, you know, it's interesting. We we did some of the latter experiments we did down down south were on trying to look at um, uh, ways to maybe try to reduce fire ants. Um, but but again, it's a two-edged sword. You know, we were talking about that moisture requirement of fire ants. So of course, whenever you disc and and when you burn, that that reduces that soil moisture for a while. Um, but the other problem is, is uh, you know, the fire ants appear to uh, like those disturbed areas to come into and, and get started. And so, um, you know, there, there's always some concern there as to, to uh, what, what could happen there as far as that disturbance. So um, I'm not sure it really, in the end, though, they're so ubiquitous that it, it, it makes a big difference. I think, you know, trying to do your... Your quail management, your proper quail management is the way to go. Okay, so we're not, you're not advocating uh, putting the disc away and not doing prescribed burning for the fear of releasing the fire ants, uh, going ahead and working with it and, and hopefully coming up with other ways to cope with the fire ants, which leads us to the idea of best management practices. So, Brad, you've studied this morning by, in the state of Texas. If I, had to, if I ask you, you know, what are two or three things that the average landowner interested in quail could do, what would be on that list? Well, so I think it's important to go ahead and, and say, you know, hey, you know, the fire ant is not the, the you know, main force uh, behind uh, declining quail populations, in, in my opinion. Um, there, there's a whole lot more things um, that we need to be worried about from a habitat perspective. And, and then right after, you know, habitat and connected habitat, of course, is, is our issues with, with our weather, not getting not getting rain or what's happening right now, you know, too much rain. We have, I've got a, I've got a landowner that found turkey eggs in the middle of his road the other day that really? had washed uh, <laughs> out of a nest. Yeah. So um, anyway, um, you know, what I would do is if I had fire ants on my property is I would actually go do that simple sampling technique that I talked about and 
see how much of a concern it actually is. Um, it, you know, is it a concern? And um, after that, you know, I might explore some of the insecticides a little bit. Um, I don't think that I would really go down that road because of the expense. And, and I think you could, again, you'd be better off putting your money into habitat management um, on, on your property and trying to overcome, um, you know, the, the potential for some ant putting a dent in your nest success or putting a dent, you know, in your, in your chick survival by, you know, trying to increase um, survival and reproduction in other areas. Because as we talked about before, obviously in those areas where we had those dense fire ants, um, they had a lot of quail. And so they're able to, um, you know, overcome that problem in those areas where there's especially a lot of rainfall, um, uh, plenty, you know, still plenty of insects and, and those populations are, are, are growing and doing just fine. And um, so, you know, I, I would look at some of the intensive management things that, um, that we're playing around with now, you know, broad, broadcasting supplemental feed um, into the habitat in the, of course, this is rolling plains. We don't have any data for those South Texas areas at all. Um, but, you know, in the rolling plains, we're able to increase uh, that October to April um, uh, hen survival. And so we're able to have more, more nests that way, more hens on nests. And, um, you know, the, we're doing some predator control stuff. Um, the, um, we've got four, four years of data with all, all years. We've got... Um, uh, about average about 12% positive increase in nest success with the with the um, predator reduction areas. Um, we're still doing some more of that. I'm not totally sold on that yet. Um, you know, with, with science, we need to repeat and yeah. wash, rinse, and repeat again. Um, but um, you know, those are certainly some things that I think I would would put money into um, before I would would do fire ant control. Just uh, what I call patternology. This is Rollins Ease for the scientific study of patterns. You, you observe different areas. I mean, when we think of the bass quail situations in Texas, we're thinking about that rolling plains area roughly from Sweetwater, Texas to Sweetwater, Oklahoma, or that Hebronville country down in South Texas. Now, I don't know, I can't speak uh, accurately about South Texas, but do those areas have fire ants? And uh, In other words, as you know, a lot of people... Our brethren up in Kansas and Missouri point at turkeys and say they're velociraptors on quail. Right. Well, we, we haven't been able to document that at least. So, uh, again, if you think about it, probably the best honey hole for quail in Texas would be Hebronville, Texas. And do they have fire ants down there? And, uh, and are they a part of the system or are they outside of the influence of the, of the fire ants? I'm pretty certain they, ha you know, I'd, I'd have to double check for sure, but I'm pretty certain they're pretty ubiquitous through that whole area there. And it was interesting again to hear your, your comments and again I'm you're talking fire ants and I'm thinking coyote control or something like that. There's a lot of similarities as as far as number one, the jury is still out in most right. cases. Yeah. Two is it's got to be an intensive effort and an intensive effort is going to be a very costly effort and you can't go in for just a short period of time and try to think that you're going to have an impact. So again, those kind of things tend to rain throughout Anything that ends in ology, and we're talking about quail ecology here. Uh, Brad, one thing that I forgot to mention earlier was 
in wildlife jargon, we talk about population dynamics. We talk about whether a mortality factor is either additive or compensatory. Does it add to the other factors, or is it if, if we have five nests killed by fire ants, does that mean that was five less than the skunks and raccoons we get? So, do you have a feel for where that falls on that on that continuum from additive to compensatory? Um, as far as if you if you just look at the cutoff of nest success, um, and, and what I'm talking about here is if if we're looking at additive compensatory, it, it kind of looks d depending on how you define it, you know, from um, from the time the egg is laid all the way through recruitment, are we compensatory or or, uh, or additive, or are we just looking at that nest? And I think if we just look at the nest peri nesting period. Um, it's going to be toward a compensatory end because, again, this is a nest that survived, uh, you know, that, that 21, 22, 23 days of incubation. And right there at the end when, you know, mama quail thinks it's about to come, come out, well, then she may lose it to fire ants. And so um, from from that standpoint, you know, it's going to, it's going to trend toward a compensatory end. Now, how that washes out in the fact that you have all these other nests out there that make it and um, chicks that survive and and uh, you know i haven't really done any analysis like that to, to look at it but and again obviously we come down all you know on the side that hey there are in these dense fire ants country there are a lot of quail so mm -hmm. okay uh just kind of beginning to wrap it up here brad are there a couple of key references, preferably online, that you'd recommend somebody get on Google Scholar and and be able to follow up on some of your research as well as others that are on the topic? Uh, sure. Um, there, uh, my paper uh, I did with uh, it's actually uh, Jim Miller was the lead author and the PhD student on that who did that great work and uh, glad should have mentioned mentioned him a lot earlier. Um, tremendous guy. Uh, if, uh, if you take a look at, um, that paper was published in Journal of Life Management in 1999. Um, and then, uh, there's some papers by a guy named Craig Davis who's actually at Oklahoma State now, uh, that were in the late nineties, early two thousands. Um, and then uh, again, the, the crew at Tall Timbers did some good work on it that was in published in some of the, the National Quail Symposia, um, uh, Clay Sisson and, um, you know, was I know an author on on some of that stuff, so um, that would be really good references there to take a look at. You mentioned uh, and credited again the Fire Ant Initiative with providing the fuel, if you will, for you to study fire ants. No pun intended. But since that time, there really hasn't been that much work because there hasn't been that much money. So, are there topics that have been left? unattended by the lack of funding in other words if i said brad here's a million dollars study fire ants and quail what would have you covered the gamut on those or would there be some other things that you really say i think this needs to be studied well i mean you know uh, you get you put money out there you, you know you and i'll both write a proposal to the rfp and right. try to try to get something going but um you know i i think again our our work that we did pretty much stops at the nest um you know we did some with with trying to look at chick survival with flush counts and some of those things but um those those aren't super strong just because of all the the uh, problems with those methodologies i mean they give you some insight into there and we certainly didn't 
didn't see as much of an impact after after the nest. Um, but you know, I think it'd be be good to go in now with some of this um, newer technology, trying to look at at chick survival um, in in some of those areas, um, and and again see um, just for the purpose to try to model that out and further understand, uh, you know, again why when it when it looks like it would be so devastating. Um, and we kind of know why it, it, it isn't as devastating because it doesn't happen everywhere. It, it's pockets. Um, but again, why, you know, do we have, can we have so many quail in those areas and still have those fire ants? So. But I know you know that measuring chick ecology is a, is a tough road to hoe, as they say, in cotton country. And it's, you're talking about something that's highly fragile. I mean, I, I regard them as wet toilet paper, just too fragile. We can't study them without having some impact on them kind of thing. Okay, Brad, so the, the jury's in. Are fire ants the pariah that some people think they are relative to Bob Whites? Guilty or not guilty? Well, if, if you're going to force my hand on it, I'm going to say not guilty. You know, they would be, be far down the list of, of things to, to be concerned about, you know, and especially uh, from the standpoint of there's not much we can do about it anyway. Well, for those of you that have listened to me talk over the last 30 years, you know that I developed what I call the red Texas Tech theory of, uh, Texas Tech theory of, uh, <laughs> and I just lost my words. But anyway, the, the, answer, the answer is it depends. The Texas Tech theory of relativity, everything yeah, is a function go. of it depends. And uh, when you're dealing with the ecological world, there's just so many different connections and so forth. It's really difficult to tease apart this item from that. In the scientific world, we often refer to those as confounding issues. We've got multiple factors operating at the same time. So again, while a lot of people would like to look at the uh, fire ants as, as the pariah, you got to keep in mind that chances are the amount of Bermuda grass and other tame pastures increased during that period of time. Uh, number of raccoons increased over that period of time. So you got several factors that are operating independently. But I really like the idea that, again, y'all gave us a measure, a metric, if you will, that we could incorporate into the Texas Quail Index because we don't have any way. We, we do dummy nests, mm -hmm. we do whistle counts, but as far as something that a landowner could do and measure, again, uh, putting those hot dogs in little plastic cups and finding out just how big an issue, uh, that's, that's something we may have to have to experiment with a little bit. Brad, again, is, is there anything else that, as far as the topic that we we're dealing with today, is there anything that we've forgotten that I've forgotten to ask you? I don't think so, Dale. I think we, we covered it pretty well. And of course, we're always able to answer questions if, if uh, you know, something, something isn't clear, shoot an email. So, Well, you might give me your email address if you don't mind. Okay. Yeah. It's uh, brad.dabbert at ttu.edu. And uh, thank you for offering that because I've got a feeling, uh, I looked at the statistics for the web, the, um, web, the podcast uh, just the last couple of days, and the number one thus far was the rattlesnakes and quail, oh. which I, rattlesnakes and bird dogs, which I could have guessed that, but I, I take it, I think the fire ants and quail will rival that as far as popularity, so we appreciate you taking time to visit with our audience today, and uh, we'll move forward from here to congratulate Bubba Wood tonight on the T. Boone Pickens Lifetime Sportsman Award and to try to get an interview with Bubba at some point in the future. But with that, Gary, we're signing off from the uh, Fieldhouse at uh, SMU and look forward to visiting with you next month. 
Thank you, Dr. Dale, and thank you, Dr. Dabbert, for your wonderful insights and information. Great program this month. If you enjoy Dr. Dale on Quail and would like to access past episodes, go to quailresearch.org. There you'll find information on the Dr. Dale on Quail podcast, as well as more information about the Rolling Plains Quail Research Foundation. I'm Gary Joyner with the Texas Farm Bureau, thanking you for spending time with us this month. Until next time. Support from Gordian Sons Outfitters makes Dr. Dale on Quail possible. Gordian Sons, the finest hunting and fly fishing shop to be found. Find out more at GordianSons.com.